I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. This podcast is brought to you in association with William Hill. Remember to gamble responsibly and visit tunlui.net on how to do so. Gavin Casey here and I'm joined as always by my colleague with the 42.e, Murray Kinsella. Murray, how are things on your end? Very good, Gav. How are you? I am splendid, thank you very much, and delighted to be joined as well by the big man Bernard Jackman. Bernard, how are things? How's your week been? Yeah, it's been good. Lots of, uh, even though there's no Six Nations, huge amount of rugby um, stuff, content to talk about. And yeah, when I saw your itinerary last night, I was excited for this chat. Yeah, I'm going to try and reel that off now to the best of my memory. I did send sort of a, a couple of bullet points into the lads and into the WhatsApp group to tee up what we might chat about. And I thought you might slice it up a little bit and take a few bits out, but no, you were both keen to go through it also. We'll talk about both Six Nations games just gone because that Wales England game was absolutely incredible in a number of ways. Obviously, we'll delve into Italy, Ireland a bit as well. Uh, let's chat about the Lions tour and some of the proposals there. It does feel as though a home tour is looming and I definitely like the idea of that when it was first broached but I've probably uh, pulled a Yui a little bit in, in terms of my own perception of that now at this stage I'm t- uh, really keen to hear your thoughts on that later on what else did I say we ch- chat about France and uh, the bubble and Fabian Galte and all that let's get the, the lads final word on that one and we've got loads of questions from the members and probably a few things that I'm forgetting as well but we're going to kick off oh yeah sorry Interpro preview towards the end of the show we're going to kick off though with the news of contracts, which I know isn't everybody's uh, idea of the most electrifying conversation, but just as we record, uh, the IRFU confirmed that Peter Romani has had his central contract extended by two years, and obviously a few days back, Johnny Sexton extended his officially, formally, uh, by a year. Let's start with Romani, Murray, and uh, I see some people kind of acting as though they're a little bit surprised or that he might be fortunate to get a two-year deal and I kind of think um, captain of Munster and has actually been one of Ireland's best players for the last 18 months regardless of what people think of him I know there's like the very recent red card against Wales which probably a little bit of like recency bias can can leave a sour taste if you like but uh, I think he warrants a a central contract personally I'd love to get your thoughts on it and, and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong I'm, no, I'm not surprised by it. I, I thought it would be a two-year central contract for him. As you say, he's a, the monster skipper, the leader down there. He's part of the Ireland leadership group. And I agree with you. I think his form for Ireland prior to that red card, obviously, was really strong. And he'd been one of the key guys. Even you think back to the start of the 2026 Nations when he actually had dropped out of the team and responded very strongly. Um and he's not he's not that old, you know. It's it's different to Johnny Sexton in that case. He's he's in his 30s now, yes, but certainly will feel there's plenty more road ahead of him. Um, and that he can manage himself very well and, and continue to perform at the highest level. And clearly that's how the RFU, David New Sephora, and the people um making those decisions feel as well, that there's there's loads more top class, world class performances in Peter Romani. That's what they're saying by giving him this two year deal. Now at the same time, there are as always, a number of really talented back rows in Ireland. And even right now, if Peter Manny came back into the mix, Tyburn has played some excellent rugby in, in the back row just very recently as well. And your your second row combination is settled. So there's probably not a... I, I suppose the question mark is that 
is Peter Manny always going to be guaranteed into that Ireland team, which you want your central contracted players really to be, given they're the ones earning the big bucks or the bigger bucks. So it's, it's I suppose, a question in the back of my mind in, in that regard is how he comes back again with Ireland. Generally, he has come back pretty strongly uh, and performed really well when he's had his back against the wall, which is a number of times. And and for some people, he'll he'll just never convince them. He's one of those guys that a lot of, even Ireland rugby fans, they just seem to to dislike and want him gone from the team. Um, and that will always be the case. But I can see the decision making sense from, from their point of view, but that'll have to be backed up by really strong performances because you don't want to get into a situation where your century contracted players don't warrant selection in the Ireland team. Even at the moment, it's interesting that Bundyaki probably won't play a minute of the championship and he's a centrally contracted player. Now, you've obviously got three quality centres all on central deals, um, which makes it trickier. But you don't want to get into a situation where your money is gone in the in the wrong place. Um, so definitely, it's, all, it's, it's on Peter Manny to bounce back strongly again, but... I really wouldn't be surprised to see him back uh, and doing that pretty soon when when that ban is is finished. No, and Bernard, I totally understand the logic behind wanting your centrally contracted players to be absolutely key figures in the international team and not guys that are uh, cast aside or or benched or even out of the reckoning completely. Um, It's just kind of not a good look. It doesn't feel prudent. But I wonder with... The idea of guaranteed starters, do we need to even move away from that a little bit? Like, I, I don't know how healthy it is either for centrally contracted players to be expected to start for their country, we, like, in every game, no matter what. Uh, it should be, and, and largely is dictated by form, but maybe when you look at Ireland over the last sort of five or so years, one of our problems has been that guys have been absolutely cemented into those positions. And as much as yes you want central centrally contracted players to um figure for Ireland when in form it doesn't guarantee them a place either and shouldn't no it definitely shouldn't and i think um the whole reason i think that central contracts were important historically were for flight risks you know so it was a way of the RFU being able to financially compensate their their star players to to keep them in Ireland and fend off English or, or French um French clubs. And I and I think um you know that that's been it's worked really well. And and even the the Johnny Sexton the Racing one was around a central contract and the value of that and and, and longevity, etc. The Dunica Ryan one was the same, you know, it was the duration. Um Racing offered them longer term. So I'm probably surprised to be honest, given the financial climate we're in that IRFU didn't probably try and stick to one-year contracts, uh, one-year central contracts, just to let everything settle down, let the game find its feet again and get a better picture of, you know, what the income streams are going to be like. Uh, but from a player point of view, obviously, if you can negotiate a two-year contract or, or a three-year contract, um, you're in a much better place. And realistically, there's no pressure on the, on the Irish coach when he sits down to pick his team. Um to include the central contract players. I mean, you know, Bundy Aki is a great example uh, for Murray there. I felt maybe he'd play in Italy just, you know, because he's not far behind the others um, at the moment and it would have been a great opportunity to to use him. Obviously, Farrell decided to stick with Robbie and, and Gary um, and, and that's fine. Um, the only thing is, subliminally, there is sometimes pressure, especially if you've been the one who's kind of pushed for that player to get a central contract and you would have to believe the new Sephora does involve you know his coaching staff in in those decisions and um <clears throat> that's maybe where it gets a little bit messy but from a 
from an Irish player's point of view and from an Irish rugby fan's point of view, you know, seeing these players week by week, whether it's provincial or or at international level, get tied down um, is reassuring, you know. And uh, you know, but I, I would, I would, I would believe wholeheartedly that it doesn't guarantee him a starting place or any of them a starting place um, uh, at all. And and I actually thought, to be honest, I thought Will Connors. I thought the back the balance to the back row against Italy was was good, you know. And um, I thought if Doris if Doris was fit, um, you know, it'd be really interesting to see where we where we went with with our back row. So, yeah, like I'm not sure Peter's the first choice for Scotland or England. Um, on obviously not on form, but just just in terms of what Will Connors can give you, what terms of Ty Byrne gives you um, at six as well. It's going to be very interesting. We've like every country, we have a huge amount of talented back rows, so. It's going to be interesting to see how it how it plays out. Mm. Just on the on the central contract thing, Gav. The impression from a lot of people would be that if you're on a central contract, you're going to be starting for Ireland. And and if you go back through teams over the last number of years, that has been the case. Um, and I yeah, I do worry that there is that pressure. I suppose the coach thinks this guy's the big earner. We've got to justify and play him at times. Um, and then at the same time, the reason a person is on a central contract is because they've been the best player on a consistent basis for a long period of time because behind the scenes, they're the key influences. They're pushing teammates. They're raising standards. They're doing loads of things that we don't even see as well as their their performances on the pitch over a longer period of time. It's not just about your red card in the last game um, or not just about one poor performance pockmarked in there amongst a, a series of strong ones. But it is a really interesting... I suppose quirk to, to Irish rugby that guys go on to central contracts and then I, I think there is that bit of pressure for them to, to start for Ireland and Peter Manny has a two-year deal now if in a year's time he doesn't warrant a place in the in the Ireland team there's still that little sense in the back of your mind we need to get value out of this um, and the same with Johnny Sexton on another one year um, that's what the RFU are doing here they're I think they're their sense is that these two guys are still going to be in the first team in, in a year's time and, and if their form doesn't warrant that, that's when it becomes a, an issue. Well, let me ask you a question that was put to yourself and Bernard by Robin Dempsey in the 42 members rugby WhatsApp group, members.the42.ie. If you want to join the good folks in the group, uh, a legendary group, I think at this stage, Robin was saying, do the IRFU need to reevaluate the central contract model? And I'll stick with yourself here, Murray. Uh, I believe there are 16 to 18 central contracts available. Would they be better off having the provinces pay a basic salary and then allocating central top-ups to a wider group of 30 to 35 players? Yeah, that would be a, that would be a, another way of doing it. And there's certainly sense in that it possibly becomes a little bit messier, I, I would imagine, in terms of all those different various top-ups, what the value of each one is, people maybe bickering over which game is more valuable than the other. Um and I agree, like it has been a, a means of keeping players here uh, and your very best players here and keeping them out of the clutches of of maybe more lucrative deals abroad because you've got a central contract, you know you're going to be managed extremely well, better than anyone else in the world really and that's a that's a big part of it. I don't think it's quite time to, to rip up this central contracting system and it is a good way of keeping players here but... I do think Bernard's right in saying that they need to be really financially prudent with it and really calculated with it and really pushing their end of it. It's, from from Peter Manning's point of view, brilliant to get a two-year deal 
and keep doing what he's been doing. Um, but the RFU have to be absolutely nailed on with all these decisions, all the more so as the, the climate is so difficult at the moment. You mentioned Will Connors standing out in Rome, Bernard, and we'll get your impressions on the game as a whole now. Uh, I was, well, even when we were chatting last night, I was asking you guys, like, were there any specific things you wanted to talk about from the game? And I'm sure there are, but just in a, a kind of a, like, uh, it's not an immediate reaction on a Thursday, but what did you make of the game in Ireland's performance? If I was asked you to grade it, like, from one to 10, 10 being excellent, one being Georgia's second half in the autumn, what were we looking at last weekend? No. Oh. Um, I'd say seven, seven really. Uh, intent, energy, work rate, probably nine. But um, I think they'd be very disappointed with the second half. Um, in terms of just really executing. Obviously, we left some scores behind. They were down to thirteen men. You know, for a couple of minutes, we didn't. We just weren't really clinical. And obviously, you know, we got a great try at the end in injury time. But I felt. Yeah, I, I felt the first half we did a lot of really good work and you know we set the scene to go and, and finish the second half really strong. Um and I just didn't feel that there was that real rootlessness there or or, or being clinical. We weren't as clinical as, as we needed to be. And I, I thought it was interesting. I, I I don't know I'm wondering about the dynamic and, and kind of the sense of, of reality in the squad and, and like I thought the the the, the post match comments were like kind of uh, maybe overestimating how good they were and what an achievement it was. And, you know, like, realistically, if, like, you know, talking about the character we showed and stuff, like, you know, um, I, I don't, I think even if Ireland were in a really bad place, they'd still go to Italy at the moment and be able to put 40 points on them. You know what I mean? And that's, I know it was important and the, and the team were disappointed with the two previous losses. Um, and maybe they feel that the world's against them and the pundits are against them and all that stuff and how dare we question them. But um, I do think that that they're where they kind of... Sh- where, well, we've got to beat Scotland anyway. I mean, that's the that's the key one for me. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I just wonder... I mean, I look back at what England and France said post-Italy and... You know, there was no kind of you know we're 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 right up there. You know what I mean? It was just given take. It was a given that they go and win. Um, and in fairness, I don't think the none of us are questioning the Irish team's character at all. I mean, in actual fact, I feel sorry for them in terms of somebody the effort they're putting in and not getting the results because there looks like to be structural issues and and um, a lack of understanding or or a lack of. Uh, being being clinical, which is obviously not helping us. So yeah, like I, I I just I hope that they're in the like they realise that we're all behind them, and you know there's still elements of the game they need to put to put in place. And uh, um, yeah, that, that that was the most surprising thing for me. You know what I mean? Like I don't think Robbie Henshaw is going to be nervous uh, playing against uh, playing against Carlos Canna. You know what I mean? Uh, he's fifty caps, and and like we just we like we should just back ourselves to go out and just put him away. And realise that unfortunately at the moment Italy isn't um, a barometer of of where you're at. It just isn't. And like understand that. And and um, it's, yeah, that's all. That's all really. Because I think if we think we've practiced because we beat Italy, we'll we'll fall short um, later on. And maybe we maybe we haven't. May, like maybe maybe I I read the kind of the post match wrong, but. That would be the only thing that concerned me. Or the thing that probably from the match that stood out to me the most was um, 
kind of how good we thought we were when uh, and when I didn't think we were absolutely brilliant. We'll talk about what Ireland did well, Murray, as well. But just to pick up on what Bernard was saying there, post-match comments and maybe the general vibe of emanating from that Ireland setup after a win against Italy. I, like, you couldn't begrudge fellas being happy with the day's work and it did maybe feel as though they, they were responding to something, probably their own bad form and how it's been portrayed in the media as they see it. From our point of view, I think we'd probably say it's been fair enough. Like they haven't been winning sort of big matches or matches against teams uh, ranked above them in, in the world rankings or teams that they were able to hang with a couple of years ago. I don't think anybody has strayed into, at least in media terms, it's rare that people would stray into sort of like personal criticism. I think it's really just pr- criticism of performance and uh, it doesn't necessarily get personal. But then we know for sure that like in the last regime if you like under Schmidt Joe Schmidt was uh, extremely media averse the probably to a, to the detriment of his own sanity at times like would have paid attention an awful lot to what was going on in the media including your own work probably uh, both of you guys newspapers uh, online punditry TV radio and so on that probably had a little bit of a trickle-down effect as well to some of the leaders in the team with whom he was in conversation often. Johnny Sexton has a very similar attitude. He's probably actually a little bit more media averse, to be totally honest. And he remains the captain now, and we've seen it even over the course of this Six Nations kind of spikiness towards journalists, which is no harm at all, don't get me wrong. I don't think anybody is that sensitive, but it does speak to a kind of like an almost paranoia, really, in terms of the criticism they're getting. I think Sexton was talking about the France game last week and he kind of mentioned something along the lines of like, I'm always amazed by the extent to which people can talk about just one game. But like the criticism following the France game really wasn't just about the France game. It was about a a sort of a 12 month, 18 month trend. Um, So I wonder when they're doing those sort of post-match interviews and they're talking about character, do they feel their character actually is being questioned when in reality, I don't think it is. Because like certainly on this podcast, We've spoken about, even in those games that they aren't winning, the fact that like they're playing to the final whistle, which sounds like an awful cliche, but it does actually speak to something as well in terms of like a team that, that is going places. That's an absolutely key trait as well. The other pieces mightn't be fully in place yet, but the fact that they um, don't sort of roll over, that the body language isn't actually terrible, even if they're down by a couple of scores late, like that's a, that's a good sign. <laughs> you know what I mean? So if anything, I'd say, We've done the opposite of question their character, but uh, just que- just question their form. And maybe they've taken it more personally than it's been dished out, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so if we get in their heads, like, they're not going to be going, oh, we haven't played a brilliant game since 2018. We haven't beaten a big team since 2018. In their minds, they finished the autumn campaign last year on a real high against Scotland. They felt they turned a bit of a corner there, come into this Six Nations with a bit more idea of what they wanted to do, a bit more settled team. They look at a red card in Wales and go, how do you expect us really to, to win that? We very nearly did. They look at the, what was it, six key, key players missing for the France game. To be fair, they were, they were down some absolutely essential guys, massive upheaval in the space of a week when you're losing that massive chunk of your team. And they think the criticism was was completely out of, out of scale for that. They feel they've done little things that, have, that were right. They feel in Italy that they showed a little bit more what they're about. And if we look at it, their, their line-out attack was certainly much better, something that we've criticised. There was a lot more detail around that. Even the Ian Henderson, what should have been his try, it was a great build-up. 
lovely timing around the corner. Everyone knew exactly where they're supposed to be. The Hugo Keenan try, which we discussed on the on the pod on Monday as well, really excellent score. Um, and in the second half, from their point of view, yes, they'll be frustrated with it, but they'll also look at things like a couple of penalty decisions going against them, um, the the kind of stop-start nature of the game that wasn't completely all in their hands. Uh, that, that's how they view it. it Maybe they're on a different planet and they're it, it being like deliberately ignorant of of certain things and realities that we see. But that's how they operate. Absolutely, it's different to how we view it. They're not going to be pessimistic about things. They feel the Italy game was a turning point and momentum's back in the camp. Confidence is is back there, and that that they're moving in the right direction to to take on a Scotland team now. Who yes have been better in this championship. Obviously, really impressive against England. But I think the Irish players will still believe we're better than these guys. Let's. Let's use this as a chance to probably get that landmark win that we've spoken about on a number of occasions on this pod for for Andy Farrell's era. Like it feels like it needs that big moment that that kind of kicks things on. So that's where they will be in their minds. And absolutely, they think we're all clowns and that we're ignoring relevant facts and that they we we don't see the progress. We don't see what 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 they're trying to do. Um, but that's a very different viewpoint, and that's not our that's not of interest to us. We want to look at it from outside base it on the, the performance we see on the pitch and Bernard's right there was improvement in Italy absolutely but that's not enough to convince us on the outside who've been watching this team for for two years um, and seen the, these occasions where they haven't been good and and maybe the, the lack of clear progress in, in the outcome on the pitch so that's our viewpoint and it's definitely different to theirs what were you most impressed by to give them their dues, Murray, uh, in terms of what they did in Rome? Was there one particular aspect of Ireland's game that looked a little bit more sharpened and improved to you than others? Yeah, I thought that line out attack was better. I thought it was um, clear. There was conviction to it as well. I thought the way the ball carriers timed their runs onto the ball was consistently better. Yeah, there's less line speed there and, and definitely the Italian defence played into that. But but Ireland's application of that I thought was better. Um, even individually, I thought a number of the players were were good. Again, you're taking into account the poor opposition, but Johnny Sexton came back and played well. Robbie Henshaw, Gary Ringrose, really good in the midfield, and and Farrell be glad he kind of probably kept with that combination and and got that boost of confidence into those guys as well. Also, really positive to see Craig Casey and Ryan Baird come off the bench. That that shouldn't be discounted just because it's Italy. Both of them did very well. Ryan Baird's first carry obviously was excellent, but I thought his five tackles really showed his athleticism as well. He looked quite dominant in those moments. One, three lineouts as well. A really busy cameo off the bench. And Casey, obviously, with his tempo, it definitely shouldn't be overlooked. Like, this is the way the game is going. You need a quick service at nine. I loved his two quick tap penalties. The first one was really quick. He scoots away down the left and, and keeps Italy on the back foot. The second one, there was a little bit more thought, but I loved the way he made the decision. Johnny Sexton's kind of strolling towards him. The usual thing of Ireland slowing everything down, overthinking it maybe at times. And Casey just sees Conan calling for the ball and he's gone. And the next phase, lovely pass to Sexton, who delivers that beautiful miss to, to Earl. So really positive to see those bits. Um, and even Conan off the bench, I thought was good as well. So there is a bit of a bounce in, in those things. And that had to be the case this weekend. Let's not get ahead of it either. Like that had to be the case. They come out of Rome with a bounce into the Scotland game. Um, and I think they achieved that to an extent. 
I know we have a strict no crack, no fun, no banter policy on the podcast, but in light of the sanctity of the dressing room being breached and Craig Casey's initiation song uh, being broadcast to the world, and what a job he did, by the way, sung uh, Wham with gusto. Kalon and the group earlier in the week, Bernard, had a question for yourself, which was, uh, what was your initiation song? And uh, he also asked, would Murray and Gav, what would Murray and Gav choose if Andy Farrell ever came calling. I, th- I think we can stick with the reality of uh, life for the moment and, and ask you, Bernard, did you have did you have one back in your Ireland debut yeah, or around the time? Yeah, No, mine was uh, Red as the Rose, um, an absolutely shocking rendition of it. Would you believe more nervous? I was way more nervous about having to sing. That was the biggest fear I had when I joined a new team or whatever, was having to sing in front of the bus. I absolutely dreaded it. And I knew... Like I'd been in the Irish squad since '98, and um, I only got captain in 2005. So uh, there were so many times I was like, "Oh, if I get capped this weekend, I'm gonna have to sing." Uh, like absolutely shocking. Um, but yeah, look, it was great to see Casey. Obviously, because they go on two buses. Um, generally, it happens on the bus, uh, uh, but obviously because of COVID, it's two buses. Um, so he did it in the dressing room, and uh, look at that. Yeah, he's just he's such a likable character and personality it's great to see him and i hope he never changes i hope he keeps that innocence and um yeah hunger and desire because uh it's got him it's got him to play for his country already and who knows where it'll lead the more that the better as well the like fans love and seeing those little glimpses and there's no harm in people seeing that yeah the sanctity of changing whatever but it's a fun moment that definitely adds to the cult of craig casey he's got a lot of supporters growing number of them but that's good as well like that's good for Irish rugby to have a, a young guy like this who's yeah. unbelievably good already in the media we got him they they put him up for interview right at the start of the championship and he did a brilliant interview with a, with a couple of us just kind of going through his pathway really comfortable speaker he definitely doesn't hate the media yet and long may that continue because some guys it just gets bet out of them and they they just I don't know fear saying the wrong thing he's a really good character and that applies to his rugby as well. Like, what a thing for Johnny Sexton to say after the match that he reminds me of what I've read about Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny Sexton doesn't say that kind of stuff lightly. And for a 21-year-old to be setting a standard in, in an Ireland squad, I think is just fantastic. It needed that as well, didn't it? Ireland's senior players, they needed a kick up the hole. They needed someone coming in and grabbing it off them and challenging their status as well. Like, you know, Craig Casey coming in, sitting up the front of the classroom with his notebook. And it sounds like speaking up as well. I think that's refreshing for everyone. Ryan Baird as well, by all accounts, has kind of put the cat amongst the pigeons a couple of times in cha- in the in the training sessions. And that's no bad thing. It's been a bit comfortable maybe for Ireland for, for too long. You want a bit of edge and you want new guys coming in and, and freshening it up. So that's really positive. Murray, what's your tune for the love of God? I've been waiting for the last couple of minutes. Oh, sorry. We said this, we did this on Monday as well, actually. Mine is still Oroshade of Ahawalia. It's so easy. And usually people kind of join in so they don't actually hear me singing. So that's good. <laughs> I actually, yeah, I remember. What fun. about you, Gav? Uh, when You Say Nothing at All by Ronan Keating. It's just, the per- <laughs> just, just. I knew it was going to be cheesy. Just <laughs> the perfect pitch for me. Perfect pitch. Uh, le- returning to uh, actual rugby, Bernard. And before we move on from Ireland, it is all about Scotland now. And like there is a sense that, of course, uh, backing up this victory in Italy and and some of the good elements of the performance against Scotland and getting a win there could have a kind of a transformative impact and just might be a springboard from which Ireland can actually kick on. These things are fickle enough, to be honest. You can criticise a team for 18 months, two years, whatever it is, but sometimes you just need that one 
uh, I'm, I'll say landmark victory. I don't think beating Scotland will be a landmark victory, but just something to um, galvanise the squad and, and really cement that belief. Uh, did you see like areas of Ireland's performance in Rome that could be applicable to Scotland, like that could expose Scotland in ways? How much do you think Andy Farrell and Ireland need to stick to the game plan they, they uh, deployed in Rome or how much do they need to deviate from it in order to beat the Scots? I, I think it'll be quite quite similar to be honest. So like this is a this is the makings of a very good Irish team. And I think the problem we'll have is that we'll never get we'll never get hammered, right? Um as in when I say that that could be a problem is that we'll always be unbelievably competitive against anybody because of the, the quality in the team, the the work rate, um, the fighting spirit, etc. So that's but that's sometimes a bad thing because it doesn't expose potential areas to improve on because you, you you narrowly lose where sometimes a you can imagine England now. I mean, you know, England after that Welsh performance, um like I could see Eddie Jones starting to rebuild um because it was so disappointing. But even though there were some elements of attack, etc. um within it, but the fact that they've had a poor start to the Six Nations um and Scotland was was a, a dominant performance by Scotland against England and Wales were, were pretty dominant as well, particularly the last 20. So Eddie Jones may now say, we're at the end of that cycle, i got to rebuild again. And I know I've, spoke, I've listened to him talk about it, and he said the art of coaching is you're going to have the end of a cycle. The good coaches minimise how long you stay in that and, and get back up. So um, so I think Ireland, Ireland are well capable of beating Scotland and England and finishing off the championship. And I do think that type of finish would be massive for us. I think... That would then give us the belief that we haven't really had the team since 2019 in a big way. Uh, I talked up Scotland before they came to the Viva in in, uh, in November. I thought they were on the right track and they really flattered the sieve and we were physically dominant. Now, they bounced back from that, obviously, to go to Twickenham and, and get a, a really good performance. And they have the excuse of the red card against, uh, against Wales. So I'm not really sure if they're... Where they are, to be honest, you know, they definitely always played good rugby. Um, what I liked about them coming into November was they seemed to have a better balance, better scrum, um, better defence, uh, better understanding of of when to play and when not to play. Um, and I still think they have improved, but I've no doubt that Ireland could go there and and beat them. And all we were asking for was just more alignment, you know, between kind of strategy and selection. Um and you know the elements of our defence and attack that weren't working. Once we get that right, and it's only small bits. And I agree, with Murray. You know the fact that we saw that improvement from our set piece attack um, is a, is a positive. So yeah, I think we can go to Scotland. But I think the biggest thing we can do is is, is dominate them physically. Um, and in fairness, to Ireland. If you look at the core reason why we beat Italy, is was we got over the gain line uh, with quick ball. And I think probably if you you know, and the, the challenge is going to be the selection. I'm, I'm fascinated to see the selection because I actually think Kilcoin, Kelleher, uh, Connors uh, make us better, right? But they aren't really first choice. They were they were rotations. Well, you would argue they were rotations for that Italy game. So if they come out of the team again, they, um, and like we'll have less punch, and then maybe then maybe Scotland have a better chance. But I'd be pretty confident that we can go there and win. But why can't they be I, first choice? Sorry, Murray. Why can't they be first choice? Like, as in, why no, do no, we they have... may be. They, they may be. I'm not saying they aren't. But I'm just, like, until we see the selection for Scotland, 
we we don't know what way Faz is thinking because they were the natural. Like it's not a risk to bring Kakoin in for for Healy against Italy. It's not a risk to bring Kelleher in um, for Herring against Italy. But it is a risk to to well, it's not a risk at all. But it's 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 you're setting your stall out as then they're now number one, and that's and Farrell has to prove that he's that they are in his mind. You know, I think that'll be really positive. If we saw a bit of that because uh, I was going to say that was the the last positive we should mention was the the pack looked really good and balanced. As you say, the back row worked really well. One of the best things this championship has been Ty Byrne becoming, I suppose, a dominant force for Ireland. He's been the best player of the championship so far. Even moving to six worked well. You saw him in the wide wide channels a couple of times and his his work rate across the board is phenomenal. Like the rock stats every week are really revealing on top of everything else he's doing. He's showing that he's he's got that side of his game as well. The second row pairing of Henderson Ryan, I think we haven't seen the best that yet. It's it's very exciting. They've a nice complementary set of skills. And that front row was so dynamic. Like Tyke Furlong looks really hungry to to prove his point after a long time out. Kelleher is just a dif- different af- athletic proposition. And then you had the handling ability for the Connors try down the left-hand side. Um, and I agree on Kilcoyne. He gives a whole lot of punch. I don't think Keen Healy has been at his best in the last couple of games um, and can still play, obviously, a big role off the bench with, with how propping works and, and the time periods you get there. So yeah, it will be positive, I think, to give a sense of continuity with that pack. And it would definitely then, Bert, probably look like a kind of fresh Ireland, wouldn't it? Albeit just yeah. a couple of tweaks, but I, yeah, I think it would be brave and 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 due, really. The, those guys have earned a, sh- a chance, I think, against Scotland. Scotland will be lacking continuity to a certain extent, obviously, when that game does roll around. They'll have gone, what, three weeks, three fallow weeks, if you like, uh, circumstantially on the back of their game with France being postponed. Everybody knows the story at this point, and it looks like it'll be rescheduled for the end of March. Um, I know you talked about it with Owen on the members pod on Monday, Owen, uh, Murray, sorry, and you uh, kind of suggested that Really, the fair thing to do would have been to award Scotland the game if, like, France were effectively owning up to Galtier having breached the bauble, guys going for waffles and and, uh, uh, just, you know, basically not uh, adhering to uh, their biosecure bauble really at all, or at least having sort of different standards for theirs and it going up in smoke. We know as well that all of their international setups, sevens, 20s women's in recent times have had sort of similar problems and far more problems than uh, all of the other six nations countries so there is a definite sense i think across the board of frustration like on behalf of rugby fans when you know the sacrifices that the players the setups are making in order for this competition to even go ahead to begin with and in order for it to be completed on schedule i I, my own like inclination like when i heard Okay, Galtier for sure broke the bubble. He went to watch his son's match. Guys went out for food or whatever and broke the bubble. And they have so many cases. Honestly, my natural like reflexive reaction was just like, oh, piss off. Just piss off out of the competition, you know? Like, it's just like, honest to God, like, what what are you doing? Like, you know what I mean? And then when I calmed down a little bit, um, I understand completely why everybody wants them to remain in the competition, clearly. But also, like, even if Scotland were awarded a game... And they probably do, in my opinion, still deserve to be awarded the game. It just ruins it. It actually does ruin it. And even if you were the Scots and you won a championship with a five-pointer against France that you didn't play, it's not even a caveat or an asterisk. Like, I think there's almost a guilt about that. So 
maybe this is the best conclusion. Are you surprised by this conclusion if it is confirmed? Or did you actually expect Scotland to be awarded the game when you were chatting to Owen on Monday? I'm not a bit surprised, really. Um, the French always find a way to to kind of smooth these things out. Um, and I think everyone's kind of come around to that, the fact that, yeah, we do want a complete championship, especially now that it looks like if it goes ahead, say, on the, the 26th of March, that the F- Scottish players from the Prem will be released uh, and you'll have, a, I suppose, a, a, the really meaningful fixture as it, as it meant to be and potentially both of them even going for a championship. It would be... You wouldn't get your Super Saturday, but it would be a pretty cool way to finish it and you'd have that sense of completeness. So, yeah, I'm kind of coming around to, I want to see it played now. But the really frustrating thing is that even just in France, they've just said nothing nothing to see here. Galtier, no, completely cleared of any wrongdoing. um, And that, you know, essentially nothing bad happened here. It was just unlucky. And, And maybe that was it. Like there's no definitive link certainly between Galtier going to watch that match and, and the outbreak or the waffles the lads going to get some waffles the night before the match and the outbreak they said they tested them as soon as they came back into camp and we won't see the report but I suppose you've got to take them to the word at that but you see Josh Adams banned for two games for his breach just before the championship going to see his family and Galtier's I suppose have done the same here but in Laporte's eyes no that's okay that's not actually breaching our protocols um, so that's frustrating for me that there's just there's no I suppose there's no punishment in that sense that they can just kind of shrug their shoulders and, and get on with things and yes it could have actually though I think um, and and could have really disrupted things and it is just frustrating that there's going to be no uh, outcome in that sense so I'm not surprised at that at the same time this is generally how it works out and I think there's going to be loads more political outcome and um fallout over this in France and certainly seems to be the case but yeah this is the way it's ended up and, and I suppose you got to get on with it yeah Bernard you'd have your finger on the pulse of French rugby very much so and even myself speaking to a couple of people who work in rugby over there uh, at a couple of clubs they're uh, sort of mention a sense of embarrassment and, and nearly shame actually on behalf of like the rugby public if, if not people necessarily working directly in the sport in that they feel as though that the, the, the French team, like this coveted sort of national institution, has given the tournament a bit of a black eye. And uh, I'm sure, like, listen, this will all blow over in, in due course. But just on behalf of fans over there, at, le- at least a portion of them, there is a, a sense of um, having having let the tournament down in a way, as strange as that sounds. And I guess that not being remotely replicated by the French setup is understandable as well because if you're fronting up to these things and saying like yeah we made an absolute balls of that then you're, you're probably uh, drawing more uh, calls for recourse against yourself and it's just uh, to to your detriment or to the detriment of your team but have you been like chatting to people over there or have you got a sense of how it's being perceived in France like within rugby but also just sort of people on the ground there? Yeah I have actually and shock hard uh- the FFR have concluded their internal investigation and there is absolutely no fault um, of anyone within the, the the French management or team. So that's gone back to the Ministry of Sport and, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, what she says uh, about that. But look, at I think we have to understand the background to this. So it wasn't the FFR who put the Six Nations in, in, in doubt. It came from the club's um, around round three and round four of the, the Champions Cup where 
you know, there've been outbreaks in the clubs and they blamed it on their matches against the Anglo-Saxon teams. Um, and they didn't want to, some of them didn't want to play round three and round four at that time, particularly clubs who were maybe in a relegation um, battle. So they canvassed the Minister of Sports because if it comes from government, it's a different story rather than the clubs actually saying, oh, we don't want to play. So the the, re the result of that was really strict protocols, uh, stricter protocols than we've had for the Champions Cup uh, for all the six teams to sign up to. Um, and it's pretty pretty clear that France haven't been as vigilant in in those uh, as everybody else. But if I'm not mis mistaken, people are saying, oh, why isn't it 28-0 to Scotland? I actually don't think that's in the rule book, Murray, um, for this competition. Um, so that was, the, that was the issue. I think in the Champions Cup, they said if there's a match called off, uh, the, the decision would be 28-0 uh, to the team who haven't caused uh, the postponement or cancellation. In the Premiership, they've, they've decided on a different format um, where the points are, are allocated differently. And from what I can gather, the Six Nations Committee um, didn't decide to formally agree on what the, the consequence would be. Because obviously, they want to play every game because obviously that affects the TV money and it's a far smaller um, uh, pool of games than in, in the Champions Cup or in the Gallagher Premiership. So that's probably where it's coming from. Look, at uh, I do think France have been really sloppy. I'm not surprised they haven't, you know, put their hand up or there's going to be no punishments because that's just the way it works there. And, and Laporte is brilliant, visionary, etc. But he wouldn't be great on the detail and, and things. And what he said about, I don't see a problem with Fabian going to the match. I mean, um, you know, it's 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 outside the Creed protocol. So, you know, um, it's it, how he how it's agreed Fabian did and the players, like they've obviously broken the rules everyone else is under, but they just said, the reporter said nothing to see and, and Fabian wasn't a patient zero, it was apparently a, a sevens player and then a preparator physique, which is a fitness coach who who brought it into the camp. Um, but anyway, I once I've parked that kind of um, disappointment that I feel Scotland were hard done by, I am actually happy that the tournament will actually finish properly and maybe France will end up winning the Grand Slam um, or, you know, Wales can win a Grand Slam, but we, at least we'll know who the best team was. So um, I am glad, I'm looking forward to seeing Scotland, France. We want to move on to Wales, England naturally, but before we do that, on this week's Behind the Lines podcast for the 42 members, Gavin Cooney's guest was a famous Welsh rugby voice who provided his thoughts on the current England head coach. You know, Ed, Eddie is um, he is entertaining. Um, also, I think a lot of the time he's a complete prat. <laughs> I, re I, re I really do. And it's so, I mean, when England lost to Scotland, he gave the reason why they lost on the Sunday in the press conference. It had changed on the Monday, changed again on the Tuesday. On the Wednesday, it was the ref's fault. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't, if I was Eddie, I'd hate to, to read all those all that press stuff. But what he says is, is sometimes non sequitur, doesn't follow. Sometimes it's a lame excuse, and sometimes it's pure rubbish. Yeah. Uh, so it, you mix that in with his good stuff. Yeah. Um, sometimes I think he thinks it is his team, and it isn't. It's England's team, and okay. I, I think that. He needs a captain to speak out and to give it all another counterpoint because, you know, it's all Eddie Jones, Eddie Jones. 
longtime Sunday Times rugby correspondent Stephen Jones there with Gavin Cooney on Behind the Lines, available to all the 42 members at members.the42.ie. Were England hard done by Bernard, or did you feel that in those last sort of 20 or so minutes after 24 all, that they, I guess, capitulated just enough to take the uh, take the edge off the officials in that particular game in Cardiff? Yeah, look, at I think, um, you know, what happened what happened in terms of the the refereeing was was really poor and i can understand how it affected england's mentality um you know they must have felt so wronged and um in fairness i think that eddie jones you know uh, uh will will use this as a kind of a case study in terms of how they need to be able to deal with um with people against them and, and poor i remember cheke used to referee our matches internally at training and um I'm not sure if it was a plan or not, but he was particularly biased um, and made some incredible decisions. And he always said it was to try and get us to be able to adapt to to poor refereeing or whatever. But um, I think that look at uh, Gozier and his co- and his refereeing team, you know, had a had a very poor um, match, and, and we saw in the Ireland game the Henderson TMO. I mean, it's unacceptable, but it's not a surprise because we've seen it coming. You know, um, we've seen it coming. So hopefully that that'll be the 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 reason the compelling reason to actually look at the refereeing standards and, and I think Joe Schmidt's got a huge job in his hands um because his role now encompasses that which is pre is different than before um and I do have massive faith in his ability to to get it fixed um and, and I do feel sorry for England to be honest I, and I think the last twenty minutes like you know I looked at the Toje's actions and, and and the five penalties I mean a couple of them are very marginal you know there's one offside block down where he's not offside. You know, and it's it's and it came in for the touch judge, you know. Um, so things kind of got out of hand and, and they free and uh, quite quickly on England. Um, and in fairness, Wales, Wales look like a different team now, and that's why we're talking about that landmark win. I mean, Wales had no confidence in twenty twenty. Um, they went into the Ireland game, you know, really worried about what could happen. They got the win there, you know. They grew into the game against Scotland. Obviously, they got a red card. And obviously they got two very lucky tries in that game against England. But the way they were playing at the end, you'd say that was the Wales of old. And, and it's it's amazing in sport how breaks at the right time can completely change the dynamic. And look at Ireland in, in you know in nineteen or in eighteen with the with a drop goal from Sexton. It you know it changed our dynamics for from round one. So um, yeah, I, I think England. The worrying thing for me about England was they actually some of their attack was the best attack they've shown um, all. All, all competition or maybe even in last year and if they get that right given and when they get their pack back on track and their discipline back they could be an even better team and a harder team to defend so um, it's yeah it's, it's going to be fascinating end of, end of tournament and I think by the Italy games all the other games have been brilliant really entertaining um, and you know if you think back to November we're talking around oh international rugby's boring um, you know I think we're seeing some good real quality rugby which is great a lot of it is cyclical, really, isn't it? Even these patches that England go through, we see it every couple of years and you kind of feel as though maybe Jones has reached the end of his tether with this team and nah, 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 just wait and see. I want to stick with the referees for the moment and, and also stick with yourself, Bernard. I'm not trying to coax you into one of your famous rants necessarily, but wanted to ask you about, say, what you feel Joe Schmidt could do in order to improve the situation. And before I, I because I know we'll get... 
blowback from people for criticizing referees and people will point out to us all probably individually on Twitter how difficult the job it is and and so on and like we're fully aware of that and I think we've, we've all said that on the record as well this isn't about like necessarily criticizing individual referees it's just really more so about talking about trends in officiating across the board that at times is ruining games and not only the spectacle of it but even um changing results now at this point and it's more so i think a conversation about how referees are being trained and how like how to better equip them to do their jobs properly rather than leave it go down this path that it's on because you do get a collective sense that people are losing patience an awful lot the more and more that these types of refereeing performances are popping up, particularly in massive games like the one in Cardiff. Uh, so to go back to yeah. my original question, Bernard, what does Schmidt do to actually address that situation? Yeah, look at, you know, obviously I people expect the rant, etc. And, and I actually am an anti-referees at all. I just see a, a um, an area of, of our game that I love that is getting further away from, from where we, we need to be. And, and unfortunately, it's been exposed at the highest level with a lot of eyes on it. And I feel sorry for, for Pascal Gozer. How I think um, uh, Joe Schmidt could improve it would be um, to not treat referees and TMOs the exact same. So we've seen some referees who who maybe fall out of form or they want off the circuit being given TMO jobs. And I actually think they can do more harm there than they ca- they could as a as a touch judge or a or a referee. So I would I would say, um, you know, if you think that referees are, are like GPs, okay, general practitioners or whatever, um, the TMO should be like a surgeon. You know, they could be just specialist TMOs because they only need to go to them three or four times a game. But when they do, they need to be right and they need to be absolutely specialist in that. And also, I think the referee needs to trust them. And I remember speaking to Nigel Owens about about his refereeing and, and um, he said to me that he used to look and, and they, they put him together Derek Bevan who's an old referee they had a great relationship on and off the field and he said because they worked together on a lot of high profile games and because they were close effectively there's that trust between them um, and you know if if Nigel was going down a rabbit hole Derek had the had the ability to, to say Nigel no you're wrong there you need to actually look at this again and likewise um, if if he Nigel knew from Derek's communication and, and, and style when something was marginal or etc. So I think that could be an area like there's massive pressure on TMOs and um you know Alexander Roos, who was the TMO for the game against uh for the for the Welsh England game, like he's a he's an international referee. It doesn't mean he's gonna be the best um TMO in the world. So that would be the the one thing I would say that Joe Schmidt could potentially look at um, as a way of um, helping referees, helping them, because it's very difficult. It is very difficult. And I think being thrown into a situation, and you look at Gaelic and, and you know, I think referees bring their own linesmen um, uh, uh, in certain games. I'm not saying we have to go down that route, but if you could have, you know, a team of top TMOs, and maybe they're all ex-referees, and maybe they're all current, some of them are current referees, but they are trained up in the art of, um, of, analysis, communication, decision-making. Like, uh, you know, I, I look enough, I, I spent some uh, time in air traffic control, right? And uh, like just studying their behaviors. And I mean, the training they have and the ability to deal with 
pressurized situation to give concise information to a, a pilot um, or a, a team of pilots who are circling an, air, an airport. I mean, it's it's a different skill to meet a pilot, right? Um, and it's just something I think that, you know, I think a good TMO can make a very bad, an average referee better. Um, and that's what we want to do. We want to get games decided upon by teams' quality play rather than two tries that, you know, shouldn't have been given and, and other pen, other like sending offs or not sending offs or whatever um, like that does happen it does happen unfortunately more often now than, than ever so that'll be my my bit of advice or, or idea Mario I have a theory idea as well so, don't give judgment advice <laughs> I'm sure he'll take it on board Bridge, when he tunes in uh, I, I, I have a theory about like just the I guess the dynamic between officials at the moment Murray in terms of there being very few disagreements actually when it comes to decisions like that involving the TMO that generally speaking now, and and I think it's far more frequent now than it used to be, there's an element of confirmation bias that sort of sets in groupthink, if you like, where uh, a referee might make a, like propose what he or she has seen on the field. Um, Linesman, lineswoman may likely agree with it and then the TMO will, will basically confirm it or you know there might be a little bit of a re- reversal of order in there I think one way to potentially change that a little bit is to actually demand that the TMO makes a recommendation first particularly if they're pulling up an incident and then let the referee agree or disagree with it rather than the other way around because it, it does feel usually as though the referee is very much that just in that particular group on that particular day is sort of the boss and and like there's there's an unwillingness to question him or her at the moment. I also think though that it's a perfectly a perfectly natural situation in which we find ourselves with groups of officials agreeing with each other. I feel in an era when their performances are being scrutinised to within an inch of their within an inch of their lives because of the advent of social media over the last decade and more, where people have actual access to a lot of these human beings with the whistle, and where there's actual written discourse, if you like, about their performance, not just in internal reviews, anything like that, but like public external discussions about how they're performing. It's perfectly natural then for officials to feel as though they're more under the cosh than ever and therefore like further unionize and, and feel as though just on some, some subconscious level, they have to support each other and support each other's decisions because it's it's like it's us against the entire world at the moment. You know what I mean? That. I think it's it's almost like they don't want to they don't want to ha- uh, throw each other under the bus or hang each other out to dry in that moment and and that was probably less prevalent um a decade ago uh I suppose I'm kind of not asking a question but just going off on one here myself a little bit but I, I wonder yeah. is there <laughs> is there any merit at all in what I'm saying <laughs> yeah the, 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 definitely the dynamic is in a strange place and I agree with you like the Lewis Reese Samet one is a is a prime example I'd love to have been in all their heads at that time and surely at least one of that match official team is thinking, not a hope, man. That's clearly a knock-on. It comes forward off his hand, as I think most of us did and and anyone who watched it back now, including Gozair, would say. It reminds me, I think I've mentioned before that bit in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers where the plane is hurtling towards a mountain and the the co-pilot is just kind of too scared or doesn't want to disrespect the authority of the pilot and and they end up crashing into the the mountain because they don't say anything now obviously it's not that grave an incident but i think there probably are instances where people are kind of like really even the owen farrell one against italy where 
I well, I felt it was a it was a late tackle and, and should have been brought back to a penalty. I, I suppose you could you can debate that one, but I'm sure people within that match official team felt maybe I should say something, but you're right, they don't want to upset that authority. So that's probably something for Joe Schmidt and the referees to work on. And then the mental skill side of it as well. Like any player, there's so much pressure in those moments. And it's just such a these things happen so quickly. Even for Gozer, when the they, they say to kick one from bigger for for Adam's try. He's got like a couple of seconds to kind of go, well, what do I do here? And in that instance, he probably said, I'm just going to double down and and confirm that decision. So those uh, that side of it, away from even the laws and the, I suppose, the decision-making, that that's massive as well. And definitely, I think Joe's go- Joe Schmidt is going to have a bigger influence as we go. There was a couple of interesting law ones even over the weekend. I thought the the chasers ahead of the kicker, the offside penalties, we saw a number of them in the Ireland game. Obviously, they were quite decisive. Uh, we saw a load of them in the Pro 14 as well, in the Leinster game as well. So I think it's good that referees are focusing on that. Hopefully that opens up a bit more um, counter-attacking space to kick return players. Guys like Stuart Hogg with one less defender right on top of them with a chance to break. That would be massively positive for the game. We also saw the three penalties in the Ireland game for the double banking at the line-out, which is something that has been... I suppose, consistently overlooked for the last number of years. It'll be interesting whether that was just him going on a kind of flyer himself or whether referees look to to kind of clamp down on that. But I think we'll see more and more influence from, from Joe Schmidt over the next year or so. But just, uh, Murray on, and, and Gav on that. So the, the, the Josh Adams try, I mean, you know, like that warranted a look uh, from a TMO point of view. I mean, and I just think because... Gozer doubled down with Farrell and didn't want to listen to him. Alexander Roos probably felt, oh, I bet, you know, I got to support them here because it was such a, it was such a confrontational discussion, and that's that that's what I, that's what I've been seeing constantly for the last year and a half is um, that lack of respect for each other's opinions. And and I know people are saying, oh, well, Owen Farrell, the way he spoke to to Gozer was out of order, but like he he just feels completely wrong. And and like Gozer now has come out and said. Yeah, look, I made a mistake. It shouldn't have been a try. shouldn't have been a try. So Farrell was right in that situation, and you have to trust. Like, there's a difference. Like, there's a, you should be able to know by players' body language when they're trying it on, or or when they're genuine. Like Henderson's try. I mean, like a minute later, he's he's saying, "Look, I scored a try. I scored a try." He knew he scored a try, but no, no, no. We've looked at it, and and again, there was a case where um, the referee didn't want to go go and challenge Pot, who who was the TMO, who again has probably refereed 500 top-class games and maybe been TMO for 10 top-class games. You know what I mean? It's like, it's it's not the same skill, I don't think. And I think you're better off having real specialist TMOs who can do it till they're 65 or 66 and who build up that experience and that assurance in their own ability um, who maybe aren't close to the ref... You know, either they're very close to referees and they work together constantly or they're... They're not close to referees at all, but they're just experts in their own field. And um, I just think having referees do it, um, particularly if they don't do it regularly, doesn't doesn't help either. But it's that ability to say, hang on, yeah, just have a look at that there. And I know we don't want to be going to TMOs all the time, but if Owen Farrell is reacting like that, if 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 Henderson's reacting like that, you gotta go, Jesus, like and if they if if it turns out they're taking the mick, you know, punish him then or whatever. But um like that was a try. It was, a, it was three tries in the weekend. Uh, one wasn't given. Uh, one wasn't given. That should have been and two that, um, two that were, weren't tries were given. Like it's mental. It's mental. 
before we move on from the refs, just one last question for yourself, Bernard. And we have touched upon it only uh, probably three or four episodes ago of this podcast, but you touched upon it there again. And, and I guess it's the nature with which uh, some referees at the moment seem to be dealing with players. And I felt Gozer, like as much as I do have an element of sympathy for him in the aftermath of all of this, because it's not nice to be publicly scrutinized and criticized like in various countries not to mind your own and but like it was the contempt with which he treated Farrell that that annoyed me to be honest like I just don't know listen I can completely understand how somebody could be annoyed by Owen Farrell um I understand how particularly people who, who aren't from England wouldn't necessarily be massive fans of his but like when you're dealing with somebody in a in a work environment, if you like, or in a kind of a professional uh, situation, ideally you'd you'd hope people would would actually just treat each other with respect. And and like, I don't understand where this the kind of animosity comes from, if you like. Now, to be fair, I'm saying I don't understand where that comes from. I haven't had Owen Farrell in my ear for the previous however minutes, um, the way Gozer likely did. But it's like I wonder, like which Schmidt or whoever. Like, let's take a collective step back a small bit here and just, like, remember to actually speak to each other like adults, not this kind of teacher-student type dynamic that's crept into interactions between the referee and player, um, which honestly will, will wind up wind up pissing off players more and exacerbate the situation in terms of how they're interacting with referees but also in always fans at home it doesn't reflect well on referees sometimes I don't even think they they want to be treating players like that but they feel as though they they need to be seen to if you like like I think that that type of it's like that relationship just needs a bit of a reset and I don't know does that come from like world rugby dialogue between both parties or or some kind of uh you know some kind of an email sent around like might not be strong enough but i do think that needs to be addressed just the 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 dynamic between referee and player seems very unhealthy and i feel as leading to or or exacerbating a lot of these mistakes because referees feel dug in like they feel more it seems as though they feel more as though more on the back foot than they have in the past. And players are getting just more annoyed because more decisions are wrong. So it's like on both sides, self-fulfilling and, and self-perpetuating, if you like. Yeah, 100%. And I, I said it on Monday night and against the head. I think three criteria for referees are fitness, relationship building, knowing the laws. Um, and I think the priorities re- at the moment is just fitness. That's the, like, fitness is the number one, which is fine. The game's got faster, etc. I think they all have a fair idea of the laws um, uh, and obviously that's not saying they don't make mistakes, mistakes will happen uh, and then the third one is the relationship building and I think that's the that's the big one and, pe- and then I, I actually saw a lot of people say oh it's not the referee's fault, it's own Farrell's fault, it's Johnny Sexton's fault etc. It doesn't matter whose fault it is, you know, they're appointed captain of their country, um, we need to start again and you know and probably I think this last weekend is going to be the the you know the the plane crash and the black box they're going to have to actually this summer work out a way of, of starting again and trying to rebuild that trust and respect both ways that you know we all talk about as one of rugby's values I know it sounds cheesy and corny or whatever but it, like at the moment it's not a good example for the kids to, like seeing that interaction and lack of respect and and you know professional rugby is only a tiny microcosm of of the game and uh like that's what the whole thing around concussion bins and concussion treatments um seeing the senior players and international players elite players 
treating it better has pushed all the way down. So now, you know, if a kid gets a bang in the head at eight, uh, an eight-year-old, like, you know, everyone knows that take him off, whatever. And I, I just think at the moment, the way what we're seeing in the pitch is is not good for creating respect the whole way down. And um, I do think it needs to, needs to be sorted out. And I think it will be. I, th- I think, unfortunately, we needed that car crash of the weekend. Um, and I don't see many referees, many captains having a really good relationship with referees anymore. So is it because the players don't have the ability to have a relationship with referees or has something changed? And uh, so that's what I'm saying. If people are blaming Farrell Sexton. Tell me a captain who's who you can see relaxed, calm, and, and a nice interchange. I haven't seen one for a while. So I think it's... Look at it. I'm not putting blame on them. It's something that's happened that we just need to fix. I, I definitely think they do have a responsibility on the relationship building side as well, though. Like, as you say, it's not the first time it's happened. I think referees are going in with, particularly around those two guys, a preconception of what it's going to be like. And I think I can imagine myself... First decision off, here he is now. I can see him coming towards me. He's got the scowl in the face. I do think those two guys in particular can can be better at managing those relationships. And I agree, the refs definitely do have a dismissive attitude to an extent, but I almost can't blame them in a way for dreading refereeing those two guys. You're right, there's no one with an unbelievable relationship. I'm trying to think of the other, the, the other Six Nations they probably haven't had those kind of contentious decisions to de- deal with either. And I can well, understand Alan, Alan the Alan Wynn's been delighted with himself. He probably has, like, yeah. Um, and the very best captains, even someone like Richie McCall, like, who was constantly <laughs> on the limit. I don't know. I, I can't remember him being that confrontation or having that many fallouts. It was calmer. Uh, even when I think of Paul O'Connell with referees, yeah, there were times where he, he vented, but there were other times where he was calm. And even when Rory Best, I suppose, and, and the big... Ireland successes he was very calm with referees so I do think those two guys in particular have a responsibility as well and it's definitely something they've both spoken about working on anyway mm, I mean the moral of the story really is don't name your out half captain they're just too sensitive uh, let me ask you about the Lions tour we're, we're clocking up another marathon time here so we'll keep this fairly brief and, there, and there's not maybe a huge amount to say at the moment we're still sort of awaiting official decisions, confirmations, and so on. Well, I'll stick with yourself, Murray, just to get your overall thoughts on the prospect of a home tour at the moment. Um, what's your sort of hype level for something like that? I'm, I'm bringing up a lot of scales here, but say on a scale of one to ten, <laughs> how, how enthused would you be by the prospect of the Lions coming, or the Lions remaining, rather, in this neck of the woods and bringing up the box? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a ten. I'm only thinking of this in a selfish way of what are the chances of me getting to cover the Okay. Lions tour this summer so if it's closer to home and if the UK can host it and, and we get even four tests as it sounds like might happen away yeah I, I think the tradition everything is great but I just think given the circumstance we're in just do whatever you can to to get it played now at this state we've dragged it on they're, they've clearly not They you know we spoke about it at the very start they could have pushed it back we felt at the start but it's continued on and it's clear they're going to do whatever they can to get it played so if that's in the UK I think given the circumstances and the opportunity for fans to be there with the, the vaccine levels in, in the UK, um, bring it on. I mentioned at the start of the show that like when it was first broached, I was really uh, enthusiastic about the prospect myself. And I think it was Tom English from the BBC had sort of broken the story or, or reported that, say, Croke Park could be a, a venue over uh, the Aviva. And I felt as though, wow, like a team with a really strong British contingent, like literally with British in their name, playing a home game at Croke Park. There might be a little bit of a historic hue to that. And then you think it's 
2021, 100 years on, and like it's a special year for the country. All and all this kind of bullshit, effectively, uh, that I'd kind of convinced myself it might have some kind of like nice meaning. And I'm not talking about sort of 2007 levels of hysteria and a nation maturing, quote unquote, and all of that nonsense. But more so that it might be a nice occasion, nice sporting occasion for the country. But that was back in these days of innocence where I felt that by this summer we'd have crowds back in stadiums. And the reality is that we're certainly not going to have that in Ireland now. Uh, and therefore, my enthusiasm for this it has eroded altogether, really. Like, I, I'm sure, if you can do it in the UK and there will be fans there, it seems great. But Birch, the more I hear about it, the more I read about it, the more it feels like they're just scrambling to get it done. And it feels more like a box ticking exercise than a Lions tour. And we all know why they want to get it done and why they will. But I, I that to me does actually detract from the mystique at this point, just that they're, <laughs> they feel as though they're under such pressure to just get it done. Um, it just, it, it reduces my level of excitement for it. I, I'm wondering if you're the same or are you kind of on a similar scale to Murray? No, I, I'm the same. I'm completely underwhelmed by the idea of it being in, held in the UK. And uh, I still am sceptical it will be. Um, I know there's a lot of, you know, stakeholders who, who need it to happen, etc. But yeah, I, I, I'm in favour of pushing it, to be honest, and, and finding a slot for it somewhere else. And, and I know it's hard on the players who potentially will miss, you know, out this year on at the peak of their career or whatever. But I, I just, yeah, look, maybe I'll grow it into the idea of, of, of it being, I'm not going to, if it's on this summer, I'll obviously be massively into it. But um, yeah, really underwhelmed, really underwhelmed by the idea. We're looking ahead to the more short-term, immediate future. Murray Interpro's back this weekend and we haven't been given the Pro 14 the love it deserves over recent weeks purely due to time constraints and the fact that there's a lot to speak about internationally. And I know we're squeezing it into the end of the show here uh, as well, but give us your thoughts on both of them. Like, obviously, the provinces are coming in, all of them in good form. So it's like, on the one hand, and that'll be a conversation for down the road, competition not in great nick, you'd have to say. On the other hand, like, it's nice that all of them come into this bringing with them an element of form and probably all fancying their chances of a win. That's the best type of weekend with plenty of high quality players available to them as well. Yeah, it's the best kind of fallow weekend for Six Nations, definitely. Given that Connacht and Ulster are essentially playing to keep their, albeit slim, I suppose, final hopes alive and, and keep the pressure on Munster and Leinster. The Pro 14 final is is on the weekend after the Six Nations, which seems crazy. It's so, it's so soon later this month. Um, and we're really building up to that and, and some really decent teams. I just saw the Munster and, and Connacht teams named there. A couple of guys back from international camp with points to prove and minutes to get into their into their legs as well as some of that young talent as well like Gavin Coombs, Ben Healy's getting a start um, at, at 10 for Munster it looks like and, and Carberry on the bench again. So there's loads of different points of interest here and I think they're going to be really ferocious games. Um, as, as we say, during Six Nations kind of period you often those provincial games don't quite capture the imagination but these ones are perfectly set up to to do so uh, and give a few guys a chance to to further their reputation and and their and show their potential to to Andy Farrell who'll be watching closely so I'm really excited about this weekend and I think we're going to get two fantastic Interpro games. Bernard Munster and Connacht your prediction there please? Yeah I think Munster um I I think Munster I, I like the way they they kind of controlled the last 20 minutes against Cardiff. And um, yeah, I, I think they're just a little bit, I know it's close, but I think they're a step ahead at the moment. Any chance that Ulster upset the apple cart a little bit against Leinster and Ravenhill the following day? Yeah, I, I fancy I fancy Ulster, to be honest. I think Leinster will be a little bit worried around 
some of their defence over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, discipline was an issue against the, the Dragons um, and, uh, and and against Glasgow. I, I thought they, they didn't look as, as comfortable. Now, uh, look, they can fix that quite quite easily. But I think it's 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 win or bust for for Ulster. Um, I like Ulster's back three. Um and you know realistically Ulster need to chase a a, a five pointer so I'm I'm actually up there for Premier Sport I'm looking forward to it. I think it could be a cracking game. Murray, your predictions for both games? Oh, I'll go boring Leinster Munster, but I do think they'll be like unbelievably good battles. Um, both Ulster and Connacht trying to have really been building this point, and as Bernard says, a few guys back even for Ulster in the back three, so it's going to be enthralling. I'm down to Toman Park actually tomorrow, uh, and can't wait to see that in person. Class. Murray, thanks for your time. Cheers. And Bernard, the very same to you. Thanks a million as always. Thank you. Thank you to all of you folks at home for tuning in as well. Thanks to all the 42 members uh, for your questions and for your continued support of our independent sports journalism. Members staff the 42.e if you want to join us. Join the famous WhatsApp group and get all of the extra podcasts, including Rugby Weekly Extra, including Behind the Lines with Gavin Cooney, which you heard a snippet of in the middle of this show and many, many more offerings as well. If you have time at all, if you could leave us a rating and review, that would be absolutely smashing. We really appreciate those of you who have so far. This podcast was brought to you in association with William Hill. Remember to gamble responsibly and visit dunlouis.net on how to do so. Enjoy the Pro 14 action over the weekend and until Monday and indeed Thursday for non-members. Mind yourselves, take it easy. I don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is coming out! Robbie Robbie Weekly. Little reverse pass, and it's off! Magic! You're not alive, boys, so you start kicking when the room is spinning and the words and.